Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the most unique preachers to ever stand behind the sacred desk was David Denton. He didn't pull any punches, and he was as straight as an arrow. This message was preached at the Midwest Pilgrim Holiness Camp Meeting in Anderson, Indiana in 1990. I know you're going to enjoy this very convicting sermon that he titled, The Great White Throne Judgment. Appreciate Brother and Sister Gray, been with them a number of times and they were pastoring. I always thought a lot of their family, their children. Thank God for the privilege of being with them again. It's a privilege to be with the pilgrims. I was the worker, one of the workers in this second camp that you had after you were organized over at Wester Holt. Had a good time there and thank God for it. A pleasure to be in this encampment, although I'll have to confess to you, I've never been in one quite like it. <laughs> I told Brother Gray after he got through uh, leading that band, I suppose he led it. I told him, I said, Brother Gray, you misunderstood them. They wanted you to be a band leader, not a cheerleader. But uh, then it dawned on me after he did it the second time that really what he was doing was catching up on his calisthenics. <laughs> but I appreciate Gene Gray. God bless him. Been a blessed privilege to be Brother Humble. I, I love and appreciate this good man. There are so many men who have been in the positions that he's held and places he's been. It kind of get an inferior, uh, superior attitude, and they make make you feel inferior. But here's a man with the unusual ability, good, godly man, who makes an old hillbilly feel good to be able to work with him. I thank God for him. Somebody said uh, today, she said, I'm surprised at him. I said, in what way? Well, they said they told me that he didn't like shouting. And, uh, <laughs> oh, brother, whoever told that show was an ignoramus, weren't they? <laughs> God bless brother and sister. Um, and it's always a pleasure to be with the Dunn family. These folks have been almost like family to me for a number of years. And I 
appreciate them. It's good to have Wendy here on the platform singing with them tonight. She had to chip off and get married and now mother and just had a new one come along shortly. It's a blessing, privilege to see her here singing with them. Of course, David, I always pick on him, but I won't do it tonight. Brother Gray's done him enough damage and we, we, we won't say any more about that. I appreciate the Victor Trio. God bless these girls. My appreciation, esteem for these girls gets stronger every time we work together. I was told since I got on the ground here that somebody is uh, taking pot shots at them. Well, if they're doing that, they must certainly have a lack somewhere down inside. Maybe it's between their ears, maybe it's under their ribs, but there's one somewhere. I don't hesitate to say so. I tell you folks, I don't appreciate people who are trying to stir up trouble, pick pieces in God's old-fashioned family. I know what's behind some of it. But I want to tell you right now, God hates those who stir up trouble between his people. If you don't believe that, read Proverbs chapter 6, you'll find out. Tell us very plainly, God hates those who cause strife among brethren. I love God's people. I can love everybody. But I have a special love for the people of God. I even love you pilgrims and uh, the strangers that are among you. Brother Gray's had a lot to say about me getting a manual. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a church history bug. I like to study about churches and so on, and I didn't have an up-to-date manual of yours. So I did ask him for one, and he did give me one with an ulterior motive behind it. But uh, I wanted to find out if you folks were living up to your manual. You know, that's how I got into the Methodist church. When I got saved, I didn't know anything about churches much. And uh, I was in college, so I went to the library. And I got the manuals and the disciplines of different churches. About all I knew was Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterian, and Camelot. And I got the manual of the different churches and I studied them and I decided that the Methodist was closer to what I thought they ought to be than any. So I joined the Methodist church. But it wasn't long till I found out that what they had in their books and what they had on their benches was two different things. I hope that never happens to the pilgrims. Amen. Well, thank you for letting me come. I'll be frank with you. I'm honest when I tell you, I don't know why anybody ever calls me for a meeting. And I sure am glad to do. And I hope they don't quit. <laughs> Thank you for all the good food I've had over here. I ate all I could get over at the dining hall, and then Sister Gray furnished me with some chocolate candy, and I ate that. And somebody brought in a chocolate pie, and I, uh, well, I helped get rid of that. In fact, if you've got anything you want to give me before I leave right after service tonight, I'd be glad to take it. 
Praise the Lord. Been a real pleasure to be here. Now, the sun is still shining. And down in the mountains where I used to preach, they, a lot of folks didn't even have clocks or watches. And they started their night service at early candlelight, whether it was summertime or wintertime. They started at early candlelight. That meant after the sun went down, when it was just about time to light the lamps and to light the candles, that's time to start service. Well, of course, it depended on whether you lived on top of the hill or down on the holler uh, as to when early candlelight came. But it's not even early candlelight yet. So I have plenty of time. But we've been here now in this service. In fact, we've been in the services about two hours. And they tell me that people cannot uh, absorb what you give them after two hours. So according to my watch, I have three minutes in which to raise the dead. I, I really don't think I can get it done. But let's stand together, if you will. Revelation chapter 20, we begin with verse 11. I saw a great white throne, him who sat upon it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which was in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, if you'll stay with me for 15 minutes, I promise you that when 15 minutes is up, you'll know it. But if you walk out on me, I promise you I'll follow the last man out, preach to him all the way home, stay with him for breakfast. Be a lot cheaper for you just stay put. Thank you. You may be seated. I saw a great white throne. All of history teaches us that things move toward a climax, just like this camp meeting. From the moment that Brother Gray stepped up to this pulpit and opened the first service of this camp, we knew that this service was coming. Everything moves toward a climax. You go out and plant your garden, put the seed in the ground. After a bit, those seeds begin to germinate and come through the soil, and then uh, they begin to grow. And perhaps after a while, they produce the fruit or the vegetables for which you're looking. But from the time you put those seeds in the ground, you know that eventually they're going to reach a climax, and that'll be the end of it. History teaches us that nations move toward a climax. I'll have to say to you, friends, though I love our country deep in my heart, I'm firmly convinced that unless God comes on us, the United States of America is on the way down. We pass the zenith of our superiority and of our glory as a nation. 
We've passed the climax, and we're on the way down. History teaches us that nations rise and fall. History also teaches us that the human family moves toward a climax and finally comes to an end. I've read you here tonight from the Word of God. The last thing that God will do with the human family, the great white throne. Let's look at it for a little while. First of all, look with me, if you will, at the time when this takes place. Beginning back there in the Garden of Eden, God placed a man and a woman in pure cleanliness and innocence. That didn't last long. Turned them out of that garden, shift for themselves for a while. Did what a lot of people are saying we ought to let folk do now. You realize, friends, that not one single panacea that's being offered us by our silly sociologists of this day uh, as a cure for our human ills, not one single panacea that they're offering us but what God has already tried it. Oh, they say, let conscience be your God. It's silly that we even have a holiness denomination now that's using that as the basis of their discipline and there's no discipline to it whatsoever. While the Bible tells us that in that day every man did that which was right in his own eyes and it led to God's judgment. Led to the flood. After that, man grew together and they tell us, you know, put everybody together. I'm not a merchantite. I don't believe in putting all churches together. I don't believe God intended for everybody to live in the same house as one big family. But we're hearing more and more of that as we get ready for a world church and a world government. But they had that back there, the Tower of Babel. They all speak the same language. As far as we know, they all worked at the same job. And it reached the point where they said, we can make our own way to heaven. That's what the multitudes of people are being led to believe today. God tried that. It didn't work. Then they wanted law. God gave them laws. We have people nowadays that feel like the only way we can go is just to write a law for everything that happens. So I picked up a manual the other day in which they said that a lady's dress must be six inches from the floor. And I'm a crank when it comes to modesty both for men and women and I'll have to confess to you much of the holiness movement is trying to get by on too little amount of clothes but when you begin to say a dress has to be six inches from the floor you're making yourself look awful silly for not all women are the same height huh they're not all the same width either, but anyway, they're not all the same height. But there are some people that have the idea, you know, that in our churches, as well as our nation, all we need to do is to write uh, 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 some more laws. I wish I'd thought and, and looked at it again. I carry in my pocket a little piece of paper 
I got it out of the Reader's Digest some years ago and took it and put it on our camera in the, in the press uh, printing shop and reduced it to where I could stick it in my book here. Tell you how many pages each day, each day that we live, they turn out so many hundred new pages of regulations and laws in Washington. Nobody can keep up with it. And the worst violators of the law are fellows that are in Washington. That's right. Why, if they go back and follow our Constitution, they put a stop to a lot of that foolishness that's going on up there. But anyway, they say we just, we just need more law. No. God tried that. It didn't work. Then he sent his son. His son lived among us for a while and then died on the cross for us, shed his blood. It seems to me that to see that Christ, the Son of God, who didn't have to do it but did it because he loved us and wanted us to be saved, to see him hanging on Calvary's cross, it seems to me that ought to bring any, everybody to the foot of the cross to love him and serve him. But instead, we're getting more rebellious. He rose from the dead after they crucified him, went back to heaven and sent the Holy Ghost to live in us. And it would seem to me that having the privilege of the blessed third person of the divine trinity to live within our hearts and to lead us and guide us and comfort us and empower us uh, and all of that, it seems to me like everybody ought to want at least that part of God in their life. But we move now to where the world in general is choosing the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. And we're moving very rapidly toward the climax of this dispensation and the end of God's dealings with the world. But before that happens, he's going to come back. I, I tell you, friends, I wouldn't be surprised to hear the sound of the trumpet any time. Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout for the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. When God's people are gone back to heaven and while they're enjoying the marriage supper up there and being united with their heavenly bridegroom the antichrist will have control down here and this whole world will be suffering in the throes of having rejected Jesus Christ in favor of the Antichrist. But then thank God after that, he's going to come back with his, with his saints. They're going to have a thousand-year honeymoon here on this old earth before he destroys it. Thank God. We're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Praise the Lord. You won't get in a hurry to go home then. We'll be having a good time. Then after that, Satan's going to be loose a little season to give the folks uh, that perhaps the ones that have been born that, into the world during that thousand years to give them a choice between Jesus Christ and the devil. And after a little season, he's going to marshal the powers of hell to try to fight against Jesus Christ and his holy city, but it isn't going to work. The Lord's going to do away with him. And then I saw a great white throne. Before that throne, 
stands the last, the remnants of the human family. But look with me, if you know, not only at the time, but look at that throne. A great white throne. Do you know something, friends? White is the prophetic symbol for holiness and purity. God never symbolizes anything impure or sinful in white. I hear some of my brethren who don't really uh, realize that and misunderstand that trying to uh, picture some ungodly things in white, but it isn't so. God never pictures that which is unclean and unholy with white. White is a prophetic symbol of purity and cleanliness and holiness. This is a holy throne. Oh, I wish I had time tonight to deal with that aspect of this thing. We live in a day when we're told, you know, if you, if you happen to correct your child, you're mean, you're abusive, they're liable to take your children away from you, all of that junk. But our God is going to deal with sin and wrong and still sit on a holiness throne. Praise God. But not only that, look at the judge that's on that throne. I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There found no place for them. What? A heavenly Father that looks down upon us tonight in love, mercy, tenderness, grace, longing to save us from sin, and yet if we reject him, and we are not among the number that are caught up to meet the Lord and go to the marriage supper. Friends, we'll stand before him. And when we look into that face of the one whom we've denied and rejected and rebelled against, uh, we'll want to get away from him. I remember my precious mother. Never weighed more than 80 pounds till all we seven children got grown, got away, so she'd get enough to eat, I guess. She got up to about 110 pounds before she died. But I'll tell you right now, she's 80 pounds of atomic energy. Oh, what a beautiful face she had until old David did something he shouldn't do and she had to call him in, have a board meeting. Looks like I've been in board meetings all my life. <laughs> Brother, I, I dreaded that look on my mother's face. If I'd done something and didn't think she knew about it and I came in and saw that look, I knew she'd found it out. I want to tell you something, friends. The face of our Heavenly Father turned in our direction tonight, wanting with all the love that could be bound up in the heart of an omnipotent God, wanting you and I to live for him and serve him and to live with him out there in eternity. Then when we come before him and having rejected him and turned him away and refused him and rebelled against him, to look into that face, earth and the heavens will flee away and found no place for them. I don't go along with my brethren who say that heaven's going to be here on this earth. I'm not that much in love with this whole world in the first place. In the second place, the New Testament teaches just the opposite of that. This thing's going to disappear. 
fact, the last place in the Bible that it's even mentioned is over there in the last chapter where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. They were gone. Brother, we're going to live in a brand new world. Praise God, we're God's children. This one's going to be gone. So I'm not getting in love with this one, friends. You better not get too close a hold on it. May I rephrase that? Most of you better turn loose of the hold that you already have on it. For it's very easy to see that a lot of us already are pretty well attached to this old world. God help us. But go on a little farther. Notice not only the judge, but notice those that are judged. My, what a crowd. The sea gave up the debt which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the debt which were in them, and they were judged every man according to the works. Now there are four individuals and groups that will not be judged there. If you go back up there in your Bible, this chapter, verse 5, you'll find that the saved that were caught up with the Lord that is coming, they're living with the Lord. Thank God. They're with him. They've been in the first resurrection. They're already enjoying the glories of his presence. Then the, there's the devil. He's not going to be judged. Verse 10 tells us that he was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. He's not going to be judged. He was, like, he was an angel in heaven at one time. He rebelled against the, the very thing that God is offering to you and I. Why should God have to judge him? The angels that rebelled with him are going to be judged. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation are reserved in chains and darkness against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men, we're told in the book of Jude. But the beast, the Antichrist, is not going to be judged. He's already in the lake of fire. I could get in trouble there, but I better move on. The false prophet is going to be judged. He's already in the lake of fire. Been there a long time. But the ungodly people, the unsaved people of all ages, they are going to be there. The sea gave up the dead. Those that have gone down in the, in the sea, in the waters, Without God, they'll come out to be judged. Death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. Oh, you say, Brother Denton, surely, surely those people that are in hell are not going to be brought out to be judged. Well, that's what the book says. After all, that isn't unusual. You go to any jail, any county or city jail in this country, and you'll find men in there that have been arrested for crime. What do they do with them? Put them in jail. Day comes when they're to be judged. They bring them out. They stand before the judge. Their sentence is read. What do they do with them? Put them back in jail. Friends, those poor people that have died without God and lifted up their eyes in hell like Jesus talked about one fellow, they know before the judgment where they're going. May I stop you to say this to you? You know, too, whether you're going to heaven or hell. Huh? 
It's the most noble thing in the world. If you've ever stood by the bedside of a dying person that was rational and had their minds, you'd see that. I've seen many of them that approached death knowing good and well they were going to heaven. I've, I've heard them shout their way across the line of worlds. And I've stood by the dying bed, even tried to hold men in as they fought demons and devils who knew before they ever died where they were going. Folks that are unsaved, regardless of who they are or where they are, they're going to be there. But look at the judgment. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And they were judged every man according to their works. The books were opened. I, I've heard a lot of interpretation of that, and, and my brethren have the same right I have. You know what books I think that is? I'm holding in my hand a copy of the books that I believe are going to be the basis of our judgment. You remember that Jesus said, The words which I have spoken unto you, they shall judge you. We're going to be judged by what's in this book. Well, I don't see it that way. Doesn't matter how you see it. Well, Dr. So-and-so said that wasn't the way it's supposed to be. Dr. So-and-so may be lying to you. You say, that's pretty blunt. I mean it exactly like I say it. I told her about a meeting down in, in Columbus, Georgia years ago, and a good many of the fellows out in the uh, Army base there were coming to the meeting. One night, a young couple walked into that uh, uh, church, and I recognized them when they come in, though they didn't look like they looked the last time I'd seen them. They'd been students in the college down in South Carolina. I was on the board of that college for 20 years, and I knew them when they were students there. He was the son of a supposed holiness preacher. She was the daughter of a supposed holiness preacher. They had been taught the old-fashioned way. They had gone to what was supposed to have been a holiness college. But now they look the opposite almost of what they used to look. And it seemed that night the Lord had already told me what to preach on. I preached about a little bit about women cutting their hair. After the service was over, they came up, shook hands with me, and said, Brother Denton, we, we're glad to see you again. And, and then the girl said, but, but you know, Brother Denton, uh, what you said about the Bible teaching on uh, cutting your hair, uh, that isn't the way that Professor so-and-so explained it to us. He, he showed us in our class at school that uh, that doesn't mean it like that. I said, will you do me a favor? Why, yes. I said, if you see Professor so-and-so before I see him, will you tell him that I said that he lied to you? And if I see him before you do, I'll tell him. Evidently, they saw him first because I've seen him several times. In fact, the last time I saw him was over here at Marion. And like I've seen him several times, but he sees me soon enough to get out of the way. I haven't had an opportunity to speak to that fellow since then. Anybody tells you the Bible doesn't mean what it says is lying to you. And we're going to be judged by what's in this book. When it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, it means exactly what it says. 
when he said that it's wrong for a woman to wear that which pertaineth unto a man, or a man to wear a woman's garment, it means exactly what he said. Huh? God helps when he says that a person that hates their brother is a murderer, it means exactly what he says. Hence, this whole book is going to be the basis of our judgment. 66 books here, every one of them comes from God. Every one of them has message in it for you and I. The books were open, and another book, which was the book of life. Now, in that book of life, recorded the names of those that belong to God. I want to be sure my name's in that book. Quickly, not only the judgment out of the books, but notice the verdict. I read you part of it here. Verse 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, anybody comes knocking on your door, ringing your doorbell, trying to sell you some literature and trying to tell you that there isn't any hell, that hell is the grave, and there's no fire in hell, you ask them to read that verse. Get your Bible. Ask them to read I have never yet been able to get a Jehovah's Witness to read that verse. I've tried it dozens of times. I've never yet got one of them to read that verse. Oh, they say, that's not in the Bible. Isn't it amazing that the, the argument that those folks and some others have been using for years, now we're hearing it from a lot of holiness preachers. They're using some of the new versions of the Bible or perversions, and uh, uh, there's certain parts of, of the old uh, Greek Texas receptus that are not found in the revised Greek that's been polluted and revised over and over from which our new versions are brought, and they say, well, now that wasn't in the Greek. You better be careful, friends. One of the last warnings in the Bible. If any man take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, I'll take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. You better be careful. But the holiest people in some places are picking up the same argument that Jehovah's Witnesses and some of those folks have been using all the time. It's right there. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. So even if, if the words that are translated hell in our Bible did mean grave all the time, and they don't, there are some of those words that can be translated either way. But even if it did mean the grave all the time, it's still going to end up in the lake of fire. Huh? Oh, that's a horrible, horrible verdict to come on for. But every individual whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life is also going to be cast into the lake of fire. And I'm glad, thank God, there's a victory for us. Thank God. What is that victory, Brother Dead? They don't say anything about it here. Well, it does by reverse. Whosoever is not found written in the, in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But we can turn that around. And say that whosoever is found written in the book of life, thank God, don't have to worry about the lake of fire. They don't have to worry about the second death. Thank God they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to enjoy his presence and his blessing forever and forever and forever. But somebody said, Brother Dan, how do those folks uh, get their name in the book? How do 
they escape this judgment? I read you here in verse 5 that they're already there, you know, and the first part of this chapter tells us they've already reigned with the Lord for a thousand years. So how, how do they get their name in that book? And how is it that, that some folks can escape this judgment while others have to face it? Well, if you go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at verse 31 and 32, you'll find out how to do it. The apostle Paul writing there to those Corinthians who needed help so badly said, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God said if you judge yourself, really judge yourself, you won't be condemned with the world. There are three places, you know, where sin is judged. One of them was at the cross of Calvary. Jesus suffered on that cross. We read in Romans chapter 8 that what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. When Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, he utterly and completely and eternally condemn sin of any kind and every kind. That little thing that you're toying around with that thinks so innocent, it may have been condemned on the cross of Christ. Don't take any changes. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from all that looks like evil. Don't take any changes. I mentioned the other, in one of the other services here, that the Old Testament clearly teaches us that the reason God allowed Israel and Judah, Judea to go into 70 years captivity in Babylonia was because they looked at pictures that they shouldn't look at. Huh? That's right, it's right in the book. For after all, before they went in there, God said, when you get in there into, into Canaan, you destroy all their pictures. And friends, I won't tell you, warn you for the last time, we're playing with, we're playing with spiritual death when we begin to fool around with a lot of the gadgets that the world is producing. When you begin to fool around with the literature the world is producing. We're playing with spiritual death. You can't watch the pictures of the world and be spiritual. Condemnation of God is on it. Sin's already been condemned on the cross of Christ, and God isn't going to repeal that. It's going to stay condemned. The other place, the second place, rather, where you can be judged, where judgment is given against sin, is at an altar of prayer whether it be the altar in your church or some private place where you get away and pray and, and confess yourself to God. But if you get down before God and plead guilty, huh? did you know the only criminals that get any mercy in court are the ones that plead guilty? 
And the only people that will ever get through to God and get mercy from heaven and be saved from their sin are people that will get out before God and plead guilty. Lord, I'm guilty. We have too many folks coming to the altar now. Some of them come for attention. And some come with a feeling, well, I'm so nice. Uh, uh, really, I'm not so bad after all. Friends, if your name isn't in the book, you're lost. You're going to the same lake of fire that the others are going. Well, that, that's why, what the lesson that God taught Job over there. I, I wondered for many years why God allowed Job to go through the trouble he went through with. When all the time he says that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, and Job loved, Job loved the Lord. And I read the book of Job through a numbers of times, and finally one day I found it. I found it in Job's own testimony, chapter 32. Job told how, what a great place he occupied, how much influence he had, and all of that. And then he said, but now something happened. And Job himself confessed that the reason that God allowed him to go through that because all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Job confessed. He said, I said, I will die in my nest. He just got so satisfied. He had such a nice nest, you know. Everything was so good. He just settled down. Oh, he didn't sin. He just settled. That's our danger. But yet, friends, to settle down in your nest... You may die in your nest without God. Job finally, after all that he went through, much accusations against him that were absolutely untrue, but Job finally saw himself in the light of God's presence and cried out, I abhor myself. And when he did, God began to come to his rescue. It's not until we're willing to, to to confess our guilt before God and our need before God that we can get through. And if you'll get down before God somewhere at an altar prayer in this tabernacle or an altar in your church or somewhere out alone, if you'll get down before God and plead guilty, thank God the great high court of the eternal heavens will have mercy on you and save your soul and get you ready to go to heaven. But friends, if you don't recognize that all sin was condemned on the cross of Calvary, and all sin must be judged as you face the judge on your knees or before God and plead guilty before him. If you don't recognize that, you'll stand one day before the great white throne. Too late then. No altar but a throne. No mercy, just judgment. No pleas that will get you in. Just a sentence that throws you in. No opportunity to get right with God. Just the time to listen to the judgments of God. Friends, what are you going to do about it? God in his mercy help us tonight to do something about it. There's an old story that came to my mind this afternoon as I was praying about this service. You perhaps have heard some version of it one way or another. I heard this when I was just a boy, just a small boy down in the holler from some old country preacher. But it illustrates very clearly 
what I'm trying to point out to you tonight. Back in the days of the old cobblestone streets when many of the streets of towns were made out of stones. Rough. Oh, how rough. And, of course, no automobile, just wagons and buggies. One day, a crowd of people in the little town on the streets, on the sidewalks, all of a sudden, down the street came a runaway team of horses on a little light spring wagon. Now, you young folk don't know what I'm talking about, but maybe the older folks can remember it. Those little spring wagons were light. They were not made to haul heavy loads. They were made to ride in. And uh, on that wagon was a spring seat. Here's these two big horses racing. The driver sitting up on that spring seat trying his best to bring them under control. But you older men that have driven horses know that when they get away like that, you can hardly ever bring them back under control until they run themselves down. That spring wagon was bouncing up and down on the cobblestones and the man in the spring seat up there was going up and down. Any minute he might fall out and burst his head on the stones or the wagon might turn over and crush him beneath it. Crowd on the sidewalk cried out, somebody do something, somebody do something, but no one seemed to know what to do or be willing to do it. But all of a sudden a well-dressed man rushed out of the crowd down the street ahead of the horses, threw himself in front of those horses, somehow managed to get a hold of their bridles, and after being drunk for some distance himself, brought them down to stop. Crowd rushed around the wagon. Men grabbed the horses to hold them. Some helped the man out of the wagon, congratulated him on the fact that he didn't get hurt. Some folks begin to praise the uh, man and, and the fellow that stopped the horses. But in the confusion, the man that had stopped the horses slipped away and was gone. Some years go by, and the man that was in that wagon got into deep trouble, committed a very serious crime, a crime that called for that man to be put to death. He appeared in the courtroom. The lawyers presented their sides. The jury was excused and came back with a verdict of guilty in the first degree. The judge asked the prisoner to stand before the bar to be sentenced. And when that prisoner stood to his feet, instead of stopping out there in front of the judge, he rushed up, threw himself as best he could up over the desk, the judge's desk, and began to scream, Judge! Judge, you can't do this to me. Judge, don't you remember? I was the man that was in that spring wagon back there when my horses ran away, and you run out there, and you threw yourself in the way of those horses, and you stopped them, Judge. You saved my life back there. A sad expression on his face, the judge said, Sir, I recognized you when you first came into my court. I've known you ever since you came in here and all during this trial. I very well remember that day when I was bruised and injured myself to save your life. But sir, then I was your savior. Now I'm your judge. Our Heavenly Father, 
who loved us so much that he was willing to give his own son to die for us and make a way for our salvation, trying to save every one of us tonight, trying to get every one of us ready to meet him and to live with him. Someday will be the judge that sits on that great white throne. And as the poet said, if his call you still refuse, and all his wondrous love abuse, soon will he sadly from you turn your bitter cry for pardon spurn. Too late, too late will be the cry. Jesus of Nazareth has passed by. The Duns are going to sing one verse. It's up to you whether or not you want to leave this campground ready to meet God or not. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't